I was warmly received uh, this morning, certainly after the Bible class, but also after the sermon. So that is a tremendous encouragement for me, and it's so nice to see so many of you out this evening. But thank you for your warmth that you've expressed to me and to my family. So we're looking at the authority of the Scriptures in counseling. (coughs) The authority of Scriptures in counseling. And we flew through a number of passages this morning. And we're probably going to keep the same speed up since nobody complained that I went too fast. But if I do go too fast, uh, please do raise your hand and just say, you know, I'm uh, I'm not able to catch everything that you're going through and it's not making very much sense to me because there's no point in me standing up here just waffling away and then you not understanding anything that I'm saying. So I'm more than happy to go faster or slower as uh, might be helpful for you. Uh, So we finished off, didn't we, speaking about the goal of biblical counseling. The goal of biblical counseling, that it is to present every man complete in Christ. I mentioned to you that I don't think there's anybody here that would like that in their job description when they applied for a job. But nevertheless, that is the job description that is given to the minister and to the elders in the church. You will also remember what the word nutheteo means. Will you not? Can you remember that? What the word nutheteo means? You might have heard it in English with regard to the word nuthetic counseling, and I said it had three points. Is anyone brave enough to have a go at what the three points were outside of a Greek teacher that we have amongst us? It implies the existence of a problem, the verbal confrontation. It's an admonition. That's the way that it's translated into the English. It's an admonition. And it presupposes that there's a problem. The second thing is, there's a verbal exchange. And that verbal exchange that takes place is with the Word of God. And it's for the benefit of the counselee and for the glory of God. All that, in one word, admonish. It's translated various different ways too, but that's the most consistent way that it's translated in Holy Scripture. I also mentioned to you, if you will remember, that that is really forbidden in counseling within the secular realm. You can't give anybody advice. You're not supposed to tell them what to do, what not to do. You're not supposed to tell them what it is that they must believe. You can't tell them what's right for wrong. You're just simply to reflect or you're simply to guide whatever word that you want to use there, a euphemism really for doing absolutely nothing. But you cannot tell them the truth. You cannot tell them the truth. And in that way, you see, Christ and the Scripture are kept out of counseling. Now, there is an exchange that takes place, but the exchange that takes place isn't between God and the sinner. It's between Freud and the sinner, or Adler and the sinner, or Roger and the sinner, or a whole list of people. It's everybody, everybody but God. So I think you can see there that there's a failure, really, in the secular realm of counseling with regard to how it is that we will truly help people. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're a sinner, you still need to know the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Scriptures become central in counseling. 
And the scriptures are central in the life of the church, in the proclamation of the word. That's the public proclamation of the word. And counseling or shepherding, however it is that you prefer to speak about it, is the private application of that word to the sinner or to the saint in church so that as we sang today, they might walk in the way of righteousness and truth. So we also said that there were lots of time wasters that went on in church. And uh, more often than not, ministers are called to do everything. They have to do this and they have to do that. They have to cut the grass. They have to be there when you want them to be there. And if you call them, they have to be at the other end of the phone. And if they're not on the other end of the phone, then you call the elders up and you complain about the pastor that you can't get hold of the pastor. Yakety yak, yakety yak, yakety yak. Okay? So the pastor is responsible for managing his time. So the phone is a time waster. I have a cell phone. It's a track phone. Have you ever heard of a track phone? 20 bucks. Only three people have that number. Because when I was a minister, everybody had that number. And I was at the beck and call of everybody in church 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I hated my cell phone. It was an I hate phone. It wasn't an iPhone. It was terrible. So the phone is a distraction. Open office hours are a distraction. The eldership in the church is responsible to help the minister manage his time. And that, of course, means that there are certain office hours that he can be visited at. And those office hours, by and large, depending on the size of the church, that has to go through the secretary. And if you stop in a church unannounced, unless it really is an emergency, then the minister ought to be guarded. He ought to have a bodyguard. That you just don't have access to him when you want it, every time you want it. Now, that's not to say that he's unavailable. But if you want your minister to survive in ministry, then you have to protect him. And it's the elder's job and responsibility that they are to protect the minister so he doesn't get fried in five or six or seven or eight or nine years. So these are the kinds of things. Can you think of anything else that a church can do in order to help the minister with regard to managing his time? Oh, yes, I like that. <laughs> Sabbatical. Yes, sabbatical, time off to study and to regroup and to spend time with his family, etc., etc. Anything else? Pray for him. I need more practical stuff. I'm all right for prayer. I'm all right for prayer, but practical stuff. Yes. Okay. Okay. Be mindful. Approach him on it and provide him opportunity for, to be able to get his work done well. Yeah? Yes. Delegate. You've got to delegate his responsibilities. 
And he has to have the freedom to be able to do that to his elders because his elders, too, are ministers and they, too, are called to counsel and to equip and to build up the church. So although the minister is uh, the teaching elder in the sense that he proclaims the word of God, that doesn't mean to say that the other elders in the church can't preach, too, and can't teach as well. So the minister has to be able to delegate, and the elders have to make that as easy as possible for him to be able to delegate. It's often difficult for a minister to do that, because ministers have trouble too. They think it won't get done properly. And if your minister is a perfectionist, then he's going to have even more trouble delegating, because he wants it done the way that he wants it to do, wants it done. So these kinds of things, I think, will be helpful for you in ministering to your elders, and to your minister in particular. Perfectionism is also another difficulty that ministers have. They have to be able to cross their T's and dot their I's. And depending on how attuned their congregation is theologically, that can become increasingly difficult for a minister. Because often he can feel like he has to give an oral presentation once a week, and then he gets grilled by it. He gets grilled by the congregation. So there's nothing wrong with being a Berean. And in fact, ministers enjoy what the Bereans did with Paul to examine the Scriptures to see if what he was teaching was correct. There's a difference between that, though, and trying to trip him up when he comes down from the pulpit. You said, what, Pastor? Are you sure that there's a circumflex over that? That's a private, that's a private theological Greek joke. So you can tell... By who laughed, who knows Greek, okay? So, all I'm saying here is that you have to be a little more conscious about what's happening here, certainly on the Lord's Day, because that's when the church comes into focus, but also the other days of the week with regard to your minister and with regard to the elders. He is responsible for doing counseling, but he's not the only person in church that is responsible for doing the counseling. So if you take your Bibles, let's look at Galatians 6. Galatians 6, 1 through 3. This tells us who it is that is responsible for counseling. We've already looked at the minister and the elders. Galatians 6, 1 through 3. So who is it there that is to do the work of counseling? And the answer is brethren. Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So the scriptures are plain in that regard. Those who are responsible for teaching, yes, the minister and the elders, but brethren. Brethren. Who are the brethren? Us. You. You are responsible for counseling. Brethren, you who are spiritual, you who belong to the family 
of God. And the term there is a family term. God is our Father. And the way that you treat one another in church is like a family because you are the family of God. And I dare say that the way that you treat each other in church isn't really how it should be in the way that you would treat your own family. So God is our Father in heaven. And He has given us gifts, pastors, teachers. He's given us the Holy Spirit to equip the church to do the work of the kingdom. And you are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are responsible, not to the same degree as the minister and the elders, but you are responsible too for doing what it is that Galatians 6, 1 through 3 says. You who are spiritual. Who's spiritual in here? (laughs) Anybody want to raise their hand? You. That's right, saints. You are spiritual because you have been born again and the Holy Spirit resides within you. You who are spiritual... There are only two kinds of people, those who live according to the Spirit and those who do not. Those who are controlled by the sinful nature. The book of Psalms tells us that right up front. You're either a covenant keeper or you're a covenant breaker. There's no in-betweeny there. And those of you who are spiritual, you are the brethren that are responsible to counsel. So there are three factors then. that we have to pay attention to, particularly in this verse. We've been told who it is that is responsible for doing the counseling. That's you, you who are spiritual. But it says something about the counselee as well. Who needs counseling? Those who trespass. Those who trespass. Sin is the reason for counsel. Now, that isn't always the case. Some of the difficulties that we get into in church are because of a lack of wisdom or simply foolishness. Not all problems are a result of sin. Okay? But certainly those who are in sin and caught in sin, they are in need of counseling. And you, brethren, are responsible for helping them be restored. What kind of sin? Does it say in Galatians 6, 1 through 3? It doesn't specify any sin. If you're in sin, any sin, it doesn't say how bad it has to be before it is that you need counseling, but it's any sin. And those who are caught in sin is the last thing that we have to pay attention to. Okay, so trespass, those who are in sin, those any trespass, and those who are caught in trespass. That is to say, those who lead a lifestyle of sinfulness. Not just simply that you stole your mom's cookie or whatever the case might be. Not just an infraction in that regard. That, to be sure, if you're stealing, is a sin. But those who are caught in sin, those who are ensnared in sin, are those who need to be counseled, those who need to be restored by the body of Christ. So not everything that happens in church that is a problem has to come to the attention of the elders and the deacons. It doesn't. But that depends upon your wisdom 
and your love and your concern for what it is that's happening in the body of Christ. And some things can be quite serious that happens in church, but that doesn't mean to say that everybody's dirty laundry has to be put out so everybody can see that. Sin is... Sin. (laughs) That's what it's going to say. Sin is sin. eh? And it's powerful. And its aim is to destroy the unity of the body of Christ. And it can often come in under disguise, thinking that what you're actually doing in church is helpful. Whereas, in fact, sin really has to be minimized in the sense of its effect in the life of the body. And the only way that you can do that is if you keep doing what it is that the Lord God himself requires you to do. And that often might go contrary to what it is that you think that you must do. So the Lord Jesus himself and the church of Christ has been given all the resources necessary in order for us to be able to overcome sin in the life of the body, but not only overcome sin and transgression, but also its consequences. So the third thing that we're looking at here, first we looked at the counselor, second we looked at the counselee, third we're looking at the task. The task. And here's that Greek word, it's another Greek word, it's katarizo. Katarizo. Now the reason I'm just bringing that to your attention in the Greek is because we saw that word in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. We saw that very same word in Ephesians 4 and in Luke and in Mark. And it's the, it's the word that speaks about mending. Remember, we talked about mending the nets. In Hebrews 11:3, 3, uh, in the ESV, it's translated created, but it can be prepared. Okay? So we're coming across that word again here. So we have to labor in church as brethren with our brothers and sisters in the family of Christ, we have to labor with one another to those who are caught in their trespasses for the purposes of restoring them. That word restore there is that fancy Greek word, katarizo. That's a command. It's not an option. It's a command. You, having the Holy Spirit, been born again, you are commanded to restore your brothers and sisters who are caught in sin, who are in a trespass. Notice, it doesn't say that you have to tell everybody in church what it is that's going on. And I know in church that that often happens, but it often happens in the, on a prayer chain. It's an excuse to tell everybody in church what it is that so-and-so is dealing with. May I ask you to be cautious about how it is that information is passed along in church. And if you have any doubt about how information is to be passed along in church, then you don't pass it along. Now that can be hard to do, and I understand that that is hard to do. But we are susceptible to listening to gossip under the guise of a prayer chain. There's nothing wrong with a prayer chain. There's nothing wrong with a prayer chain. We're the problem. 
So let me caution you again in that regard with respect to what the Scripture doesn't say. You have to restore that person. It doesn't say that you have to tell everybody in church what Mrs. So-and-so is dealing with or what Mr. So-and-so is dealing with. The manner. These verses always uh, uh, tell us about the manner in which we are to restore the person. With a gentle spirit. That is to say, in meekness. See, and that speaks to what it is your motivation is with respect to counseling. You might have a messianic complex and think, oh yeah, I struggled with that. I struggled with drink. I struggled with sex. I struggled with this and that and rock and roll. I know just how to help that person. And I'm not suggesting that if you didn't, if you did struggle with those things, that you don't know how to help that person. You You may well know how to help them. But that's really not the motivation that you must have. And and a check on that is whether or not you restore that person in meekness and in gentleness. Do you have a gentle spirit? Are you really concerned about the person who is caught in sin? And are you really prepared to stick by that person because he is your brother or your sister in the Lord Jesus Christ and restore them in a spirit of meekness and gentleness. So the other thing that we're looking at there in the text is cautious. You have to be cautious. Take heed. See? Be careful. It's not an easy task. You are responsible for doing it, but sin is sin. And you have to be wise. You have to be meek. And you really have to have that other person's best intention in mind. And you have to, above all, recognize that you can fall too. That you can fall too. You have to be cautious. You have to have an accurate sense of who it is that you are and what gifts and abilities that you have. So if the person that you are dealing with and helping to restore is struggling in the same area maybe that you struggled with, that doesn't qualify you simply to help. In fact, that might be a snare for you. So it's responsible on your part to find somebody in the church under the right circumstances and means that they may be a better person to help you restore your brother and sister in Christ. Are there any questions or thoughts that uh, come up with regard to that? Yes. Yeah. Um, Can I put you on hold for that? And if I talk fast enough, I'll get there tonight. Okay, if I don't, bring that up again, and I'll be happy to answer that. Romans 15:14, if you would look there. I myself am satisfied about you. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, 
that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That, brothers and sisters, is the qualification for counseling. That is the qualification for counseling. Brothers, full of goodness and full of knowledge. You don't need a BA in psychology. You don't need a master's. You don't need to be certified by the state in order to have your Bible on the desk, but you can't open it unless the person wants you to open it. Go figure. Even in Christian counseling circles, you can have the Bible on the desk, you can have it visible, but you are not permitted to open it unless the person you are speaking asks that you open it. Now, who's in authority in that session? Caesar. Not the Scriptures. And so the Scriptures, once again, you see, are excluded from the counseling session. There by choice. And even then, you see, when you exchange God's Word, that is done within the context of state regulations and the law. And so you can be prosecuted depending on what it is that you say and what it is that you don't say. So I'm suggesting to you forcefully that that is not counseling. And just because you are a Christian who counsels doesn't mean to say that what you are actually doing there is Christian counseling. Because the Lord God, as we said in the prayer, I think it was, doesn't share his glory with anyone, not even Caesar. So, full of goodness and full of knowledge, they are the qualifications that are required in order for you to be competent to counsel. Any questions? You're not that agreeable, I'm sure. Nothing? Yes. Yeah. It doesn't mean encyclopedic knowledge, academic knowledge. The knowledge is the knowledge of Christ and His Word. Show yourself a workman so that you're rightly studying and approved unto God so that you might rightly be able to divide the Word of truth. It's the knowledge and the wisdom of Christ. So there's not really there's not really a gradation that if you know 80% of church doctrine then you're full of knowledge but certainly it comes by experience in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and your knowledge of the word of Christ and how it is that you are able to apply that and I understand depending on your circumstance in life if you have five children and you're at home with them as a wife, and you're changing nappies all day, then you don't have the opportunity like I have to counsel people. But that doesn't mean to say that you are not qualified. That just has to do with opportunity. So the knowledge that we're speaking about is the knowledge of Christ crucified. The gift of the Spirit and all that the Scripture is pleased to tell us in terms of the good news. The more you know about that, 
And, the, and when I say know there, again, I'm not just speaking about academic knowledge. The more you know about that in the sense of being able to minister the word of Christ, the better you will be at counseling. Romans 15:14 there, full of goodness, full of knowledge. So we should talk a little bit about gifts, about gifts here. Qualifications with regard to counseling, you have to have gifts. Now, some people will be more aptly suited to different areas of ministry. Some of you might have more of a heart for evangelism than you do teaching. Um, any and all kinds of gifts that are present in the church are varied, but all of the gifts that are present in the church can be used in the ministry of counseling. So some might be uh, excited about evangelism, some might be excited about teaching, systematic theology, uh, some might have the gift of uh, ministering to the sick or to the old folks, etc., etc. As creative as you can be or as evaluative as you can be with regard to the body of Christ here at Eden, that is the diversity of the gifts that are present in the church. And there's not one of you here tonight that cannot be used in the ministry of counseling to some degree or other. Again, depending on your life's circumstances. So let's look at uh, graces, the graces that the Lord God is pleased to give us. Turn to Romans 12, if you would, and just let me list this. I've got a whole bunch of scripture references, but it, I don't think it would be helpful if I just rattled them off. I don't like proof texting, and as you can see, that's kind of what I'm doing tonight. I'm just proof texting. So read the scriptures. Don't just don't just look at the Scriptures and say, well, yeah, Pastor Ian said that, so it must be true. Be a Berean and have a look at the flow of thought and the context in which these verses that I'm giving to you are found. So Romans 12, it lists gifts. First one is prophecy. Second one, helps. Third one, teaching. The fourth one, exhortation. Exhortation. Faith, giving. Six, ruling. And the seventh is mercy. Prophecy, helps, teaching, exhortation, giving, ruling, mercy. So the Bible also tells us certain things about those gifts that have been given to us. I'll list these, if you don't mind, too. First, these gifts, as obvious as it might seem, it needs to be stated, these gifts are from God. They're spiritual gifts, and they come from the hand of God Himself. Second, they're gifts. That is, they are not rewards. They are not something that is earned by the church or by the Christian. They are gifts. Third, every gift, every Christian has a gift. Every Christian has a gift. 
Fourth, God has chosen to give different gifts to the body of Christ. They all have a different function, but they all form a unity in the body. So not all the gifts are the same. Fifth, the gifts are not for your personal benefit. They are self-effacing. They do not draw attention to you. They are for the benefit of the person to whom it is that you are ministering to. Six, every gift is important. Every gift is important. Seven, only believers have spiritual gifts. They are spiritual gifts. You who are spiritual. Eight, each Christian should discover and employ their gifts. Do not neglect the gifts of the Spirit, Paul tells us. And so every gift, as I've said, number nine, every gift can be used in the ministry of counseling. So there are plenty of you here in church tonight, and each of you have a gift. How it is that you might discover that gift is by engaging yourself in the ministry of the church, whatever it might be, whether it's cleaning the church, whether doing the windows, whether praying for somebody, Uh, Whatever it is that makes the family work, you are responsible for engaging yourself in that ministry. And when you do that, you'll find that there will be some things that you gravitate to and some things that you don't gravitate to. If you don't gravitate to something in particular, it doesn't mean to say that you are unspiritual. It just means to say that you don't like doing it and you do like doing something else something that the Lord God has put on your heart in order to be able to minister to the body at large. So it might not be a gift that ministers to an individual person, but if you're an electronic engineer, hey, you might be able to minister there for the benefit of the whole body. So I don't think that you can just sit around and navel gaze and figure out what your spiritual gift is. You have to be active in the life of the body. And the more active you are in the life of the body, the more discerning you will become as to where it is that your particular gifts lie. But you have to do it. Otherwise, you transgress what it is that Paul says you are responsible to do. Do not neglect your spiritual gifts. Any thoughts on that? I, I kind of hesitate to just, I feel like I'm bouncing on. Well, you know, when you throw a stone in the, in the lake and you see how many times it can skip, I feel like I'm skipping a little here. So if, if I have to fill in the gaps, then you've got to stop me. Nothing? Okay. So the last thing we can look at there with respect to uh, these gifts and, uh, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Qualifications. Uh, growth and experience. Growth and experience. The scripture says 
that if you are a new believer, then you are not full of knowledge and wisdom. You're not full of knowledge. So again, even though I say that everybody in church has a gift and it all can be used for uh, the edification of the church and the building up of the body of Christ, that doesn't mean to say that you should be involved, say, on an elder level with regard to ministering and counseling those in church. There's something to be said for gray hair in the church. It's a crown of glory. And wisdom, the psalmist tells us, is with the ancients. Wisdom is with the ancients. So, all you older folk in church that are above 70, if you're called to be an elder, then you should be an elder. You can't say, oh, well, yeah, I've been an elder for 40 years in my life. It's time I had a rest. You ought not to do that because you are a wealth of wisdom in the life of church. And if you want an example about that, just look at Caleb. In the Old Testament, he was robbed of his inheritance when he was 40. He wandered around the desert for 40 years. And when he was about to enter into the promised land, he was 80. And Joshua said, are you ready? He says, I'm ready. I'm ready to go into the promised land and claim my inheritance. 80 years old. So let me encourage you. If you have gray hair and you are called to be an elder and voted to be an elder, then do not refuse your calling. The last thing then with regard to qualifications is opportunity. Again, I made mention uh, to this. Uh, depending on what it is that your calling is in life outside of the church, you just might not have the time uh, in order to do some things that other people who are local to the church and who are maybe retired, they have time on their hands and they are able to minister in the church. Uh, than if you are a traveling salesman and you have to fly here and you have to fly there. So again, uh, I'm not suggesting that you have to give up your job in order to be here at church and do ministry, but I am simply suggesting that opportunity has everything to do with how it is that you will minister in your spiritual gift. Okay, Christians then. Christians have a unique resource for ministry. Christians have a, new, uh, have a unique resource for the work of counseling in the church. John 14, 16, and 18 helps us in that regard. The Gospel of John. There it speaks about the Holy Spirit. He, the Lord Jesus... He speaks to his disciples and he says that when I go to heaven, after the resurrection and ascension, I will ask the Father to send you the Spirit. Jesus is resurrected. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he sends the Spirit. And the Spirit that he sends is another counselor, just like me. So the departure of Jesus from the church isn't a hindrance to the life of the body of Christ. He gives the Spirit and it is the Spirit of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is only given to the church. 
It's poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost. And all those who are in church, all those who are born again, are recipients of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not given to the world. It's given to you for the benefit and for the glory of Christ. So if you seek counsel, you see, outside of the bounds of the church, you are seeking counsel to unspiritual people. You are going to get information that is not in keeping with what it is that our our Lord and Savior is pleased to give you in His holy word. Isaiah 9 and 6 helps us also in that regard with respect to the Holy Spirit. It says that He is quick of scent. So as you grow in wisdom and nurture and in the admonition of the Lord, you have the Holy Spirit that is given to you and you become increasingly more discerning as to how it is that you are to minister to your brothers and sisters and the Holy Spirit is quick of scent. That cannot be said of anybody who does not have the Holy Spirit outside of, ch- outside of the church. So, what we can say then in summary here, What we can say is that in Christian counseling, the Holy Spirit knows why we are in difficulty. He is the Spirit of Christ. And He knows in your particular circumstance in your life just where you're at and He knows what the circumstances are. He also knows the solution because nothing happens in this world outside of God's sovereign plan. You are not subject to chance. No matter what it is that has taken place in your life, no matter how horrendous it is, either you have sinned or you have been sinned against, no matter how horrendous that is, that is not outside of the will of God. God is sovereign in these matters. And as hard as that is for us to swallow, you have to remember that that is the case because if God isn't there, it's out of His control. But there is nothing in this world that is out of God's control. And as we said this morning with regard to Mike, God does His work very well and justly, even when wicked men and devils have their way. You have to hold on to that, because where sin is, grace much more abounds. So let me ask you, what's the worst sin that's ever been perpetrated in this world? Yeah, crucifixion of Christ. What's the best news in the whole world? The tomb was empty. The crucifixion of Christ. The worst sin perpetrated is in God's providence, the crucifixion of Christ. The good news is the crucifixion of Christ. Is there anything in your experience or my experience that even comes close to the horror of that? No matter what it is, is there anything that comes close to the Son of God 
perfect in every respect, a lamb without blemish, led like a sheep to the slaughter, perfect, perfect. Is there anything that comes close to that in your or mine experience? I would suggest to you nothing. And by saying that, I don't mean in any way, shape or form to minimize what you have done or or what has been done to you, but I don't want to leave you there thinking that somehow you're floating in the wind of contingency because God doesn't have control over it. Of course He has control over it. Of course He has control over it. Why anything happens to us personally? We don't always know the answer to that, but we do know and we do believe in the just judge in all the earth who judges justly. And we might have to wait until that time in order to hear that judgment come down. In the meantime, we trust our Father in heaven. There's nothing easy about that. It sounds great when I say it theologically, doesn't it? And we all go, yeah, 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 yeah. And we should go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I understand that, that those words in and of themselves can just kind of float off our back. So in the midst of sin and in the midst of death, the Lord God speaks. And it's because He speaks there that He can overcome that sin and death. And His Word reaches into the deepest recesses of our heart and He dispels that sin and death so that whatever it is that has happened to you, maybe not now and maybe not in the near future, but one day it will be righted. And that's your hope as a Christian. Now that gets even more difficult, isn't it, when you think about things such as rape. And things like that. How difficult it is to say to somebody that your rape is not outside of the will of God. And believe me, when I talk to people, I don't talk to them like I'm talking to you now, where it's all kind of cut and dry. I understand that in the middle of the situation, how you say things has everything to do with how well it's communicated. But the theology behind it is exactly that. Yeah, even that, the Lord Himself Present and able to transform the ugliness of sin, not only the ugliness of sin, but also the consequences of that sin in your life, He's able to transform that into good news. He did it with the death of His Son. The worst sin ever perpetrated is the best news in the whole world. And because Jesus Christ suffered, you suffer. And part of that suffering is the down payment that you will be raised again on the last day. Jesus didn't die so that you wouldn't suffer. You participate in His death. And when you participate in His death, then you participate in His resurrection. That's the bookends in which you live your life. The difficulty is that we are finite and we have difficulty, great difficulty in understanding what it is that the Lord God tells us in His Word. But we believe that He is our Father in heaven and He has nothing against us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Questions on that? Scent. Yeah. Yeah. He's discriminating. Yeah. Aristotle or Plato, I mean, some of those, they have things to offer. So, like, can we not look at anybody outside the church? I don't know if that's what you're saying. Or, I mean, yeah, I'm scratching where it itches there, I think. And you're picking up on what it is that I'm saying. Yeah, if you have a headache, then don't come and see me. Go and see the doctor. Okay? But with regard to counseling, with regard to personal godliness and life in the covenant, the only person that you take instructions from is the Scripture. And the Scripture promises that it delivers everything that you need for life and godliness. You hear that? Everything that you need for life and godliness. Can Aristotle help you with life and godliness? Can Plato? Plato and Aristotle, their decided agenda was to deny God. Can I read Aristotle and learn something? Yeah, I can. Do I need to read Aristotle in order to learn something? Well, if I'm a philosophy major and I have to get through an exam at school, yeah, I have to read Aristotle. But he does not contribute anything to me with respect to my life and godliness. He tried to account for the existence of the universe outside of God. So did Plato. And and their ultimate presupposition was, know thyself. He was the center of the universe. Now, does that mean that in his thinking and in his life, he didn't stumble across things in this world that aren't true? Yeah, he did. He had to because it's God's world. And he can't deny that it's God's world and use God's stuff in order to ultimately deny him, he had to stumble across some truth that's found in general revelation. But in his system of thought, he is thoroughly pagan. And Paul speaks to that, not with regard to Aristotle necessarily, he speaks to that in Acts 17, with regard to the pagan gods. And Christ is the answer there. So, so, can Aristotle help me in some degree or other? Yeah, I dare say he can. Would I put my trust in Aristotle in any way, shape, or form? No. Only in the sense that I'd have to give the right answer at the quiz. This is what Aristotle said and what he didn't say. And the same with Plato. So, I'm speaking about ethics, really. 
I'm speaking about ethics. The Bible doesn't tell us about electricity. Does that mean because the Bible doesn't tell me about electricity, I shouldn't switch the light on at home because it was founded by an unbeliever? Whether it was, I don't know. But you understand what it is that I'm saying there. Yeah. Yeah. So with regard to counseling, and with regard to being conformed to the image of Christ, you have to listen to Christ in order, be, in order to be conformed to His image. If you listen to somebody else, then you will be conformed to that person's image. So when you look at the psychologists that are out there, Christian or not, when you look at the psychologists that are out there, the way that they look at man has everything to do with their methodology. The way that Freud looks at a man has everything to do with how it is that he will counsel him. The way that Rogers looks at a man, Skinner, the behaviorist, the way that he looks at a man, give me a child and at five, at twelve, I'll give you a lawyer or whatever it is that he says. Simply by operant conditioning, by behaviorism. So the way that you look at the person has everything to do with the counsel that you will give him and also the purpose that you have for him on this earth. The only thing that gives us a right view of man is Scripture. He's made in the image of God. You know his origin. You know his creation, you know his purpose, and you know his goal. And that sets out for you everything that you need to know for counseling. I don't want to be conformed to the image of Rogers. Or Freud, for that matter. And any further questions on that? That, that, to me, is just absolutely fascinating when you look at the whole breadth and depth of counseling. So, for a Christian, you see, who holds to the Scripture as being authoritative, who knows that man is made in the image of God, who knows what he was created for, his purposes, and where it is that he's going to be, one way or the other, in heaven or in hell, for him to be able to dip into Freud and to be able to dip into Rogers and Skinner and Young and integrate that erroneous bad theology with God's good theology, there's no such thing. You can't integrate truth with error. There's no integration of faith and learning. What's happening is that the unbelievers, because they live in God's world, all the while they deny that they're living in God's world, they use God's stuff. He gave them a brain. He gave them breath. He gives them food. He gives them everything that they own, and they use everything that God gives them to deny Him. Isn't that right? They sit on his knee and they slap him in the face. They sit on his knee and they say that there's no knee there. So how in the world can you use the denial of God 
in methodology, bring that into Scripture and say it's on par with the Word of God. You just can't do it. So the watchword in higher education, you see, is in Christian education, is the integration of faith and learning. I don't get it. I don't get it. Do you? Yes. Yeah. Physiological psychology, nothing wrong with it. It's a science. But when they tell me how to live, I have a problem with it. Because God tells me that I have to love God with all my heart and neighbor as myself. On these two laws, all the law and the prophets hang. So when it comes to ethics and living then the Scriptures are king. And only the Scriptures are king. Can I eat food that's plowed by an unbelieving farmer? Absolutely. But he's not telling me how to live my life before you and before God. The minute he tells me that, he's on God's turf. So does God allow unbelievers to eat and drink and plow and feed the world? Yes, he does. That's what we call common grace. They deny him with regard to his saving efficacy and his existence, but God provides common grace in their life so that they might work out ultimately God's purposes in this world. He doesn't just slay all the unbelievers because they're unbelievers. They are working for his purposes. See, it's just a glorious thing. The storehouses of the wicked will be turned over to the righteous. So everything that the unbelievers are doing to build up their own empire and their own kingdom, in the final analysis, all that wealth will be turned over, wealth in the broadest sense of the word, all that wealth will be turned over to the righteous. And isn't that what you see when Israel came out of Egypt? The richest empire in the world. And when Israel walked out of Egypt, what did God do? What did he do? Yeah, he did. He softened the hearts of the Egyptians and they handed all their wealth over and Israel marched out with all their wealth. And that's a foretaste of what will happen in the future, with regard to the kingdom and the extension of the kingdom of God on earth. But the minute the unbeliever tells me what I can and cannot do, and don't forget, he really can't do that because there is no truth. But you're wrong. There's absolutely no truth. The minute he tells me that he can't give me advice, he's given me advice. 
See, my philosophy teacher used to say at that point, well, that's just disintegration into the void. He's building, an, uh, he's building a water ladder on the sea. Everything he presumes to tell you, he actually denies. And that's what psychology does. The very fact that it can exist, it can only exist in a God-created world. If it lived, if it lived in harmony, consistently with its own presuppositions, it would die in a minute. It's a parasite. It's a lie. And lies live off the truth. So if the unbeliever was left up to his own presuppositions in the way that he lived his life, he would commit suicide. If he was remarkably consistent in what it is that he believed, he would commit suicide. Why doesn't he commit suicide? He loves himself too much. Actually, that's why he would commit suicide. He doesn't commit suicide because of God's common grace. God restrains sin in the unbeliever. So the unbeliever cannot live out this life according to his own presuppositions. He would die. I'm running out of time. Questions? Or thoughts. Come on. Yes. Moving a little bit on the philosophical into the practical. Yeah, good. Ephesians 4 says, speaking the truth in love. So can you give us some of your insight on the way that we can better do that? I am often clumsy. I am often insensitive. I am often wanting to communicate truth. But how do I do that in love? Um, if you can give me a specific... I think I can be of more help to you. Galatians 6, you shared earlier in the um, right. discussion, and part of that is bearing one another's burdens. So let's assume a situation of offense or hurt or difficulty that someone comes to you without a specific sin problem, perhaps, but just in a place of uncertainty. So in this place, then, Yeah, I'm still struggling to grab it. Okay? <laughs> I don't want you to give the whole show away because I know you're thinking about something. But How are some ways as we sit across from someone in any kind of conversation that we, in that situation, communicate love to them in the way that we give truth? Okay, I'm going to have to come up with a specific situation then, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm shooting from the hip on this one, okay? Um, I can see by what it is or by the way that you look that there is something that you are struggling with, that you're having difficulty with. And if there is any way whatsoever that you think I can be of assistance with, I would be more than happy to help you. Am I getting close? Yeah? 
Yeah, so the work of the Holy Spirit, see, the work of the Holy Spirit is a paraclete. Okay? And as you read some of the verses that I didn't give you there, uh, the Holy Spirit, the idea of the Holy Spirit is usually what happens where there is sin, you see, and there are people, then there's this kind of a conflict. And the Holy Spirit teaches us by virtue of His work that not only uh, that there can't be conflict when there is sin, but more often than not, the Holy Spirit comes behind the believer or the person who is struggling. So instead of meeting you head on like this, you can come behind the person and put your arm around them and walk with them in the difficulty that they are engaged in. So I can see that there is something that is really troubling you. And I don't really need to know all the details, but if you, knowing that I love you and that I am caring about the particular situation that you're in, you have to know that if I can be of help, you can come to me. And if they know you well enough, they know that you're not going to blab all over church what it is that you've said. That's the negative side of that. Is that helpful? So he would say listening? Uh, not just listening. But listening but, starts? Yeah. Yes. Yes. You have to be able to understand where it is that the person is in order to be able to be better helped. And I think if you have children, you can see that quite quickly. Certainly, as a married couple. Okay? You often arrive at a conclusion before you actually know what the problem is. And that itself causes conflict. So just be patient. Be patient with all men. Be patient and make sure that when you speak, then the tone of your voice, the manner of gentleness, has everything to do with how well you communicate your love to that person. But it doesn't mean to say that you can be a listening ear forever and not do anything about it. Yes? I just answered that, yes. Yeah. So if the person then begins to talk to you further, then part of your loving response will be, I think we're going to need some help here. Notice we. I think we're going to need some help here. And don't just palm her off or palm him off onto somebody else. You stay with that person through the difficulty that they are going through. And you might not have to say anything. Just your presence and a cup of coffee here and there might be enough to communicate that you are concerned about them. Yes. You evangelize him. If he's not convinced, like Christ is, like, yeah, yeah. If he's not convinced, okay, the gospel is the solution of his problem. Yeah, you minister to him. You minister to him not just simply in word. And reform folk are good at ministering in word, but they're not very good at ministering in deed. Okay? So, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So, not only do you minister in word, but you minister in deed. And when you minister in deed and word, the fullness of the gospel is present. So, just because the guy won't repent after you've challenged him 50 times and beaten him into submission, okay, 
take him out for coffee. If his family's in need of help, the church can help. So you soften his heart by the things that you do, not just simply by the words that you speak. If he loses his job and he needs a mortgage payment, then the church pays the mortgage payment. You minister to them indeed. You're kind, you're gentle. How is it that the Lord God ministered to you? If there's anybody that had a right to knock you on the head doctrinally because of your rebellion against Christ, it was Christ Himself. But the way that He won you, He wooed you and He and He, he, <laughs> he wooed you so much so that there was a time in your life that you were willing to dedicate your life to Christ. And that just wasn't an academic exercise on your part. So you minister in word and you minister in deed. And again, that's where the gifts of the church come in. Some of you are financial wizards. I'm not. Some of you know how to do all that stuff. Somehow when we come to church on Sunday, all the gifts that we have and we use in the secular realm, it goes out of the window. And we do things in church that we'd never do outside because somehow it's spiritual and godly. But if you actually applied the gifts that you have in your workplace, in the life of the church, the church would sing. But somehow when Jesus gets into the middle of it, oh, we have to pray about it. Yes, we have to pray about it. But we have to get up off our backsides and we have to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant in the application of the gospel. First of all, to the church. Because when unbelievers see how it is that you minister to one another and you take care of each other and you do that with love and compassion, then people will come to church. It's time for me to finish. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we ask again uh, for your blessing. There is much that we have spoken about tonight and much that needs unpacking further. So we pray, O Lord, uh, that as we read your word, we would be continually challenged as to these matters. Matters that have just been spoken of here with regard to concepts and methods, but really must become part and parcel of the life of the church. So help us to be more discerning. Quicken our hearts, O Lord, so that we might see the fullness of the revelation of Christ. Yes, him crucified, risen and ascended, given gifts to the church, and the church, O oh Lord, has been promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, that we would believe such things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.